Hey there, Next Real listeners, this is Andy. Before we dive into this episode, I wanted to let you know about an exciting change. As you may have noticed, we have been including episodes of one of our other shows, Movies We Like, in this feed. Well, we are thrilled to announce that Movies We Like has grown so much that it's now ready to strike out on its own. From now on, to catch the latest episodes of Movies We Like, you'll want to head over to its dedicated feed and hit that subscribe button. We've got plenty of other great content lined up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. Don't worry, though, the next Real Film Podcast isn't going anywhere. We'll still be bringing you the same in-depth discussions and analysis of your favorite films right here in this feed. So if you love what we do with Movies We Like, be sure to search for it in your favorite podcast app and subscribe today. Thanks for being a part of our podcast journey, and now, let's get back to the show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. Welcome to Movies We Like, part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. I am Pete Wright. On today's episode, we invited Antoinette Messam to talk about Jean-Pierre Junet's Amélie, a movie she likes. Antoinette, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for having me. So excited to have you here today. We are thrilled to uh, to have you here to be talking with you about uh, you and what you do, all the amazing work that you create, and also about this fantastic movie. So before we start talking about Amelie, let's talk a little bit about you and kind of what led you to becoming a, a costume designer. Uh, your parents were both involved in the world of clothing and everything. Like, is that where you first were drawn into this world? Absolutely not. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, ran, I ran away from it. My my mother, it wasn't actually my parents. It was my grandfather was a tailor. Okay. And um, a very esteemed tailor. There wasn't very many tailors in Jamaica who had his skill level, who had trained away from home. And my mother, one of his you know, 11 children was also very skilled as a 
she calls herself a dressmaker. I call her a designer because I saw what she did and it was far more than just making dresses. She sat with her clients and sketched and cut custom. So that's designing to me. So it was expected that I would follow along in these footsteps. And being in Jamaica as a young child, the last thing I wanted to be doing is sitting behind a big old dirty old it was just it just looked scary to me singer (laughs) these old singer machines that were huge and I just wanted to be outside and I wanted to run around and be in trees and go to the beach and pick get cockle shells for my grandmother I didn't want to sew so I rebelled against it and I got in so much trouble and if Antoinette the adult could go backwards and embrace the skill and learn from my grandfather, I'd be, to me, a much more skilled costume designer. So that was why I said absolutely not. I rebelled against it immediately. Yeah. So where was the point then when you flipped? Yeah. Where, where was that? What was that switch? The switch came... I mean, growing up in around clothing and building, I loved fashion. I started modeling very early, around 16, and um, segued from modeling to styling because I always appreciated and liked what the stylists were doing, especially in stills and advertising to create stories. I wanted to go in that direction, which I did for many years. And I became a parent and wanted some stability. And someone recommended that I could buy for film because I had the network. I had the vendors, the skills that I would, it'd be a good transition for me to work in the film industry. And that was in my, I'd say late twenties. So it wasn't, and it was, I mean, I went to school for fashion. I didn't go for costume or theater. I went for fashion. I thought I was going to be, if not have a clothing line, have a, I wanted to do marketing. I wanted to be in fashion, but for some reason I thought I'd be in Paris working in Vogue. (laughs) (laughs) If I had a dime. Yeah, (laughs) if I had a time, but costume, costume was not on my radar. Never even crossed my mind. And and somebody recommends you should give uh, f- the film industry a shot. And you think, I think that might be more stable. Well, you know what it was? I don't know what you know of fashion, but it's usually contractual. And you have to invoice. And then you have to wait 20, 30, 60, 90 days, sometimes to be paid when you invoice. And as a young mother... I had daycare. I had, you know, my kid had obligations. Yeah. Obligations. And I was like, you need to be a grown up. This may not, this lifestyle may not be the best. It may be, you may look fantastic and dress in models and doing all that, but you're now a parent. You got to become a grown up and get a weekly paycheck. Yeah, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I reached out to a designer they recommended, uh, Delphine White, who, became not only hired me but became a mentor and recommended me for my first costume gig very early in my career because she felt that I was a designer she saw it in me she thought the project which was MTV's first drama series 
was very suited to my background in fashion and then what I was learning in costumes. So she recommended me to the studio, to the producers that I had the eye. And if they hired senior assistants to help me, they thought she thought I would be the best person for that job. Wow, great. And I started out from basically as a costume designer and then went backwards and did all the positions in the department. <laughs> so learn it, learn it the backward way. Well, yeah. Hey, so, so your first, the IMDb credits, your first, your first gig as a costume designer as one episode of classic close to my heart television forever night. How old were you oh, when you started no. getting those gigs? That was like five years on. Or okay. Two. Yeah. Um, my first job as a costume designer was a series called Catwalk. Okay which I don't even know if we can find it on IMDb. This is like 91, 92. And um, I know I left it in 93, but it was Catwalk and it was MTV's first drama series. And I that did, was it. Yeah, I did season two. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think I did a couple of, you know, two camera sitcoms and realized very quickly that was not for me. <laughs> why not it was like whoa just factory just pumping it out really quickly and luckily it was great training coming from a background doing commercials and music videos it was great training to do sitcom but I just didn't feel it was giving me the opportunity to create or do the stories I was just dressing people good looking people in, pr in pretty clothes you know, and I could go back to styling and make more money doing that. <laughs> right. So I just felt like I, I at that time is when I really, re I realized that this may be my calling. I really enjoyed if I could read in that script and it come to, to life in my head, if I saw the people dressed, walking, talking in their clothes I knew what I wanted, what I was going to do. And it came naturally. You know, I've turned down projects that I'm, I've read a script once, twice, and I just can't see it. I'm just not feeling it. And half the time that's because it's written poorly, but you know, bad scripts affect you in different ways. And part of it is as being able to, to immerse yourself in the story. Do you remember the, the, turning point as you started working uh, really kind of on costume design, coming up with the ideas where you had the opportunity to like, you read the script, you had an idea and it, it you were able to fully realize it. Do you remember like, what was that film where you felt like that was a, that was a turning point where suddenly I'm like, this is, I'm finally able to kind of like get this vision on screen. Wow. I, I'm, maybe it is forever night. Because what was exciting about Forever Night, I did some independent films before that, which were fun and creative. But what was amazing about Forever Night is, even though I'd done series before, this was, this was grown-up work. This was flashback over 800 years, every episode. And that's where every skill that I had and didn't have came into play. It's like, the pace with the contemporary, which, you know, my background in fashion helped, but learning on the ground to do period, 
each episode, what are we doing? What are we creating? So that was the first time I had to put together a shop, like sewing shop to have people making things and we buyers to rent and pull for those flashbacks. I was able to create a system that I had a researcher researching the episode upcoming. So by the time, okay, we've now started shooting this episode, I'm moving ahead to read and re- look at the research for what's coming to the next one. And when we pull it off and I look on, on screen and I see it and I'm like, oh my God, this looks, this is it, you know? Yeah. Where the, where the, the character is allowed to transcend vampire soap opera. Yeah. Right? And like, yeah. That's, that's really cool. And that show was kind of bonkers in terms of a mashup of like yeah. so many different tones. <laughs> yeah. It was insane. Insane. I remember that was the first time that I understood the relationship between a production designer and a costume designer and what that marriage could be like working together on a project like that. If, if I didn't have his mentorship, his um, guidance, because I was still a junior designer, this is only maybe four or five years into my career you know, so it was a big leap for them to hire me. And what it did is make me fall in love with period. Doing a film not long after that called Ruby's Bucket of Blood with Angela Bassett and Journey Smollett. Journey was like 13 years old, 12 going on 13. She was a baby. That again is just like, I'm still to, to this day, one of my proudest works of, in terms of period. That's fantastic. And you've done quite a bit of it, too, over over your career. You've kind of danced quite a bit through all of it. And it's fascinating looking at the varieties of projects that you've been a part of, from things like Creed to, most recently, uh, Book of Clarence and Lyft, and just seeing the variety of, of tones that you end up playing with in the films. In, in the process of all of these, I mean... You know, film by nature is just a very collaborative medium. You need to very much kind of collaborate with directors and actors and so many other department heads. What is the process uh, in in kind of finding the right tone for uh, collaborating and helping the whole vision of the director realized, but also your vision of the costumes on screen? The process usually starts with the director. I feel the director set the tone, you know, and even though they themselves may not be artists. I know that you know what I mean by that, where there is directors that their gift is the action, the storytelling, the actor, but may not necessarily be as skilled in the creative end of the story. And and that's where people like costume designers, production designers, DPs, we come together to, to flush out and, and help in that world where there's directors who know down to the tone of the paint what they want you know and that too is lovely because then that rises a bar and is like wow can I meet this challenge and deliver what they're asking for but collaboration for me is really really important and I realized really quickly if the, the the players, the creative heads of departments 
who's a collaborator and who's not. And I work better with talkers. There's some people who just like to be left alone and do their thing. I feed off people and what they're doing. I mean, a good example of that, and probably to this day, I don't know if I can match it, is Martin Whist, who I did The Harder They Fall With. I mean, Martin is an artist. He's a painter by craft. Like he, he's, he paints and he shows in galleries. So he's an artist already. We were like, again, that husband and wife team where I'd show him a scrap of fabric and he'd come back, look at this wallpaper and then boom, I'd go back and get something dyed to work, you know? And it's like, oh my God, that blue dress. Now I know what I want to put in that, the inside of that saloon. You know, so we, we worked together, you know, as soon as he started building that white town in Maysville, we went down there to see the colors and the tones and see what tonally knowing James wanted this town to be all white, but explaining to him that let Martin do the all white and then I'll do layers, textures that will complement but not be jarring so that when the protagonists come they pop well and martin is a is a wizard with color in his production design and i imagine that's an incredible playground i one of the things that you i i I note when i just look at your collection of films your catalog you have creed uh harder they fall um uh you know book of clarence you have had to face dressing icons Right. That that have transcended the the specific film that they're in. So I as I started kind of asking this question myself, I think the Internet was listening and the algorithm fed me a video of Sylvester Stallone introducing his fedora that he now sells on his merch site. Right. This is the classic fedora. And I got to thinking. I wonder what that's like from your perspective when you get to something like Creed and you have Stallone showing up and working with Kugler and, uh, you know, trying to figure out how do you dress an icon? How do you dress Jesus? How do you dress this incredible sort of transcendent cowboy, black cowboy Western uh, that that is iconic? What goes into your process when you're when you're faced with with, you know, dressing these kinds of characters? Every movie is different for me, you know, and yes, it's their icons and you can be intimidated and I, I'm, I'm, I can be intimidated, but what helps is, is communication, you know, and with Sylvester Stallone, I asked the producers if I could meet with him before I traveled to Philadelphia, before he traveled, because I knew that our communication needed not to happen two days before he shot, you know, or the day before I needed to get an idea of what his thoughts were. Did his character arc turn or change from when we saw him last? Like who was he, who was this man now, or was he the same person? And those are questions that I had for him, you know, also just quite honestly using the excuse that I needed measurements and if I could do it in person. Measuring him was secondary to talking to him and hearing his thoughts and his ideas. And, okay, this is who I want you to call to get the duplicate hat made. They made the first, they've always made the hats. They'll make the hats again. 
Do you ever run into, to, hey, uh, Sly, uh, let's lose the hat. What if we lost the hat? <laughs> oh, I didn't. That was above my pay scale. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that was above my pay scale. I mean, we got into, you know, whether or not he had enough aging on his clothes and, and wanted to age it himself. And it's like, you can't age it yourself because then I have to match it, <laughs> you mm. know? So yeah, it right, was right. challenging um, because... He's such an icon. I don't know if either one of you have been to Philadelphia, even just going through the airport. He's everywhere. Yeah. You know, well, pictures a big of Rocky. Of him. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Every, every, it's like wherever you turn, there's something to say Rocky was here. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> so that, that was some big shoes to fill. But even harder than that was communicating with Ryan, who was still a, a young filmmaker finding his his way and i could just imagine how he felt working with stallone and and the fact that he had the audacity <laughs> to create this script and get it greenlit so there was a lot of i felt there was this energy of a lot of pressure all around hannah beekler who was a production designer bonded on that project as well. We came together and worked together to fill big shoes, if you wanted to say that, you know. Um, I'm really proud of that film. I did not have a lot of time, very, very little time, because some producer thought that I could rent all these boxing <laughs> kits. <laughs> and I'm like, no, guy, they're made, and the best ones are made in the UK, in London. So it was a learning curve for a lot of people. Wow. Jeez, wow. That that movie actually, I follow-up question, uh, that movie uh, it gets me thinking a lot about the human body, right? Because, of course, Michael B. Jordan is, you know, transcendently huge in that movie, right? And as much as I want to imagine you going up to him one day and saying, hey, you know, your abs aren't showing off my work enough. Back to the gym, buddy. Um, I'm sure you didn't do that. How do you how do you relate to physical form coming from your background in, in fashion and modeling when it comes to dressing people like you know, Michael B. Jordan or somebody who has to exude sex appeal or something. How do you relate to them with their body conditioning over the course of a film? That was a, that's a good question. That one was tough because when Michael was in training and still wanting to define his body. So when we started, he, he was already there working with boxing coaches. He had multiple people working with him for different reasons, whether it was the hands or the pontoning or just building bulk. So I measured him right off the top and then continued to do so. Luckily for us, this, this, this tailored stuff was closer to the end. His Most of his clothing was, was athletic and loose and, and very, in the beginning, L.A. version of that, sort of stylized and, you know, coordinated and hip as compared to grassroots and organic, which it's it kind of the art went that way once he got into the local gyms. I mean, there, I, one scene, sorry, just to, to share with you, 
going into the original gym that they shot the first few Rockies in and seeing t-shirts that they sell with the the logo and wanting to use it. It's like, take off that Nike tank top and put on this t-shirt because that's what you would do, you know? But his body wasn't as bulky as it is now. He didn't get that frame really until Black Panther. He was he bulked up considerably for Black Panther. So after the first Black Panther, when you see him do Creed three, he's significantly larger. He's he's significantly larger. So he was fit and toned, but not to the. He wasn't as massive as he was now. It wasn't as big a change over the course of that story. No. Same with Jonathan Majors. Jonathan, when I did The Harder They Fall with him, was very fit and very toned. And you see it in the scene where he's being whipped and punched. Right. But who he became with Creed Three and the Marvel movie was like double his size. Right, right, right. You know, as kind of following off of that whole idea of working with bodies and 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 people and coming up with outfits that obviously fit the character. I mean, you want the char- you want the outfits to be honest to the character, but also kind of finding a different tone for each of them. And uh, you know, thinking of Lift, one of the, the the recent Netflix movie that you have, it seems like a fun opportunity for you to return to the world of fashion to a certain extent. You know, you're filming all across Europe with a whole bunch of beautiful people who are very rich because they're all thieves. And so they're all very well dressed <laughs> and they uh, just, they look great. They're stealing, you know, they're a bunch of gold out of a plane, but they all look fantastic through <laughs> the whole movie. Fantastic. And they all, but they all also have their own little, their own looks and everything. I mean, I, I think speaking to the idea of, balance you know talking about what pete was talking about with kind of the way that you have to working with the body and everything but also balancing out the the story but also with all the different characters experience helps <laughs> you know it really does i've i've learned a lot over the years and the script helps because especially with lift it it helped to give me a synopsis, a a backstory for each of these characters and who they were. And I mean, off the top, you're right. They're millionaires. So I had to keep that in mind that these, this, they, as young as they looked, they're art thieves. So they have money. So I'm not a big fan of logos or placement that says Gucci LV, but yet there had to be an air of money in places and i mean you really see that on kevin hart's character you put kevin hart in a black turtleneck he looks like a a bazillionaire he does (laughs) yeah and trust me nobody thought that would happen with some of my choices are kind of looked at me it's like trust me you know and also too let's make sure we define him and define a look that's very different than anything he's ever done because when you look at Kevin's other works, he tends to be in that athletic street urban look all the time. Sure. Which is who he is in real life. That's how he rolls, you know? So if, when he's doing press or doing any um, type of advertising type stuff, he's a little slicker. But in real life, he's really casual. I just wanted to make it effortless 
how he looked, you know, that if he put on a suit or that first time we see him in his apartment, he is wearing a very expensive Tom Ford velour polo with custom-made cashmere track pants. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the a dude makes it work. That's right? it. He but makes it, looked, it work. It looked, ca- it looked effortless, and that was right, the goal exactly. with him, yeah. with all of them. I feel like Lyft in general, part, for a couple of characters, I mean, uh, Gugu Mbathra, you can uh, put her in, she's magnificent. I feel like the mountain that you had to climb between Kevin Hart, who generally plays someone who's kind of goofy, right? The comedian. And Vincent D'Onofrio, who's coming off of Kingpin, making D'Onofrio the goofball and Kevin Hart the strategic genius and making those character profiles work felt to me like a massive, not to coin a term, lift on your part. Can you talk a little bit about the other side of that, making uh, D'Onofrio play as a mountain of a man? Oh, wow. I just like literally had chills. I love that man. I think that was the highlight of making Lift for me is working with an actor of that caliber, an actor who came in with ideas. And we had so much fun working on those characters. I mean, my staff didn't have fun. I mean, trying to find a Texas (laughs) suit while you're in Belfast, that is across the other end of the world. (laughs) You know, I had buyers in LA and Texas looking for his size because he's a big man. It's not that I couldn't have found it. It's finding one to fit Vincent. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, we had fun with that. I mean, it included the collaboration with our makeup and hair head of department. And we would stay after he wrapped and, and test looks on him. And he'd go outside and just immediately morph into character, especially that first costume that he wears, the suit with the... With the cane. <laughs> the cane and the sloppy ascot, because it couldn't be too perfect. You know yeah, what I mean? Because he totally. doesn't know how to do that. <laughs> but yeah, so everything was... It was in character, but a little off. Not quite perfect, right? Well, it's it's... You know, transitioning to the Book of Clarence, which, uh, you know, watching the movie, it's not the movie I expected from James after The Harder They Fall. It is so full of fantastic treatments with the sort of anachronistic touches, right? The uh, and I'm I'm curious how you approach you approach that script. Do you remember the first time you read it, thinking, "What am I going to do with this"? Oh man, that was um, the backstory to my doing the book of Clarence is I knew about a couple of projects that James had floating around, you know, the prequel to The Harder They Fall, the sequel to The Harder They Fall, a biblical movie. And he called me, I'm in Jamaica with my parents and it's the end of August And he says, are you ready? Let's go. (laughs) And I'm like. Oh, what? uh, I don't know how to do that right now from here. (laughs) I'm like, I'm in Jamaica. (laughs) And which one? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which one? And he's like, oh, we're doing the Book of Clarence. I said, I'm in Jamaica. How soon do I need to get to L.A.? He's like, now. We're going in 12 weeks. Oh, jeez. And what do you mean we're going in 12 weeks? 
No, we, we're shooting in 12 weeks. So I had Holy to get cow. pack up my parents, <laughs> get them to Toronto, where that's where they live and where I grew up, and then get on a plane and get to LA. And I'm reading the script on the plane. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I'm reading the script on the plane, making notes, at questions. Thankfully, God bless Wi-Fi on planes. As I'm reading the script, I reached out to Western Costume Rental House that has a research department. And I had to say, okay, you guys, this is an emergency situation. I'm literally getting off a plane, meeting with the director, turning around, packing my kit, getting on a plane to Rome. I need, I know nothing about this, 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 and this. <laughs> yeah. And predominantly this, this script, what freaked me out, every job, I, I don't know, you, you guys have talked about the diversity and the, the choices I've made. I'm crazy. I do that. I like a challenge. I like to, to, to mix it up, do something different. One of the reasons I went to do Lyft after a period. I, mean, I think Cliff came after Secret Headquarters, which was Owen Wilson. Yeah, that was very much about. I've never done a superhero costume again, and it's okay if I never do another one. <laughs> I just hadn't gotten to that question yet. Angela. What's it like putting Owen Wilson and Michael Pena in superhero gear? <laughs> yeah, um, PTSD from that one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I literally, like, I knew nothing about the Roman soldiers. And military is really important because you have to get that right. You have to make sure that it's authentic. It's the right uniform, the right level of seniority within ranks, all that stuff. And it wasn't even like I had time to hire someone to do specifically. I just needed to know what does it mean to me? What is the backstory? This is a time period. Give me what you know on Roman soldiers at that time in this region. And then I will break it down from there and do a deeper dive. But just the, the, the Coles notes, you know? And then I'm like, this is a Black movie. How did the Black people get there? Which was more important to me because soldiers, we could fabricate if we couldn't find it. We could, you know, but is this fantastical? Is this, are we making this up or is there some fact to this? So that person that gave me my start in this business, my mentor, I reached out to her from the plane, <laughs> typing away. <laughs> this is true. Because I needed to have these, the right questions when I had the five minutes with James before he got on a plane and went to Italy. And I said, you just worked in Malta. You did the same time period. She did, um, Dove Keepers in Malta and it's a beautiful little period film. And I said, so you, you have some experience with this time period. Can you do some research on? I'm assuming they're African or Arab or like, where did they come from? How did they get to Jerusalem? Yeah. Because I needed to be able to say to Jane, this is fact. This is not. How do we want to treat this? Right, right. And she came back with some of the most fascinating articles and research because she's an educator too. 
And it wasn't even about the visual yet. It was just about where they originated. This is the trade route that they came in from Northern Africa or Western Africa and the reasons they ended up in Jerusalem. So that was really fascinating and just actually made me happy to again, like the harder they fall, say, these people existed. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah. And at the end of the film, I went to Rome and went through some of the museums and actually saw art and pictures of tombs with carvings of what is obviously black African curly haired people, you know? So, um, that was, that was lovely. And I mean, I shared this obviously with James, but it was just knowing the facts now having some factual information. Then I'm sitting in front of him and say, what movie are we making? Yeah. It's a significant question for this movie. Yeah. Yeah. What do you want this to look like? I mean, there's lots of biblical films out there. Some of us grew up on the Ten Commandments. And then there's Life of Brian. Yes. History of the World Part Two, Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks, right? (laughs) And then you go all the way over to the other end, The Passion of Christ. And, you know, so Jesus of Nazareth. We could go on and on and on. And the Italians are masters of this. They do them yearly. So I said, which ones do you like? What do you gravitate to? So he immediately said, this is trash. This I don't like. This is fantastic. This is a work of truth. So he broke down his favorites for me, which started to narrow down my, okay, This I see where he's going here. I see what he likes. And what came out of that conversation was Jesus of Nazareth. This, I think it was like multi- was it many mini a mini series? There was so much of it. He studied that because he just liked the way that story was told. But what he also liked tonally was how that movie looked. You know, some of the other ones were a little. Both of us agreed were too embellished, were too over the top. Wanted to pare it back. He used the word a lot, gully. I'm Jamaican. I know what gully means. Gully is sort of organic dirt, not dirty in the sense of dirt on clothes, but down and dirty, down real. You know, let's get let's get down and make it real, make it real street. That's that's the slang. That's what gully means. Gully, gotcha. Yeah, I mean, the harder they fall, the word was. I want swagger. <laughs> but with this film, yes. he wanted it gully. And that's the, you know, communicating with James. That's you learn to understand. He says, I want it gully. I want hoods for him. People would think you're putting on a hood of a hoodie. No, hoods for him was he wanted those head wraps wrapped like hoods. So when he said hoods, I needed to understand that. But more importantly, I needed to explain that to the Italians who had no idea what that meant. Because to them, they're (laughs) turbans and, you know. Yeah, totally different, yeah. Totally different. But most important, because I had such little time, by the time I got to L.A., we're 10 weeks out. By the time I was able to get on a plane to Rome, we're nine weeks out. I'm in Rome, eight weeks out, trying to crew and set up shop and figure everything out. So I'm behind the eight ball. And it's not even like I had my director in walking distance 
or to show or do anything because he's now he went straight to Matera, which is where we shot the film. Crew based in Rome. Yeah, crew based in Rome, and we all traveled to Matera as a as a production. Wow. Did you go to Matera? Were you there during production or were you bouncing back and forth between the two places? What I did is we start we prepped predominantly prepped in Rome because the rental houses are there, the space is there to prep. And then I went there for a weekend to meet with James. It was the first weekend the DP was starting as well and meet the production designer. So I wanted to meet everyone and spend some time with them, seeing what they were doing. And they were all behind the eight ball as much. I mean, production designer, I don't think he, he looked like he wasn't going to have a heart attack before the movie ended, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but we met. But what was important for me with going to Matera that I didn't realize until I got there is any ideas that I thought about design went out the window once I actually landed in Matera because I got to see up front my palette, my backdrop. The actual location. Which was the location. Matera was our location. There was a lot of dressing of, you know, that period into Matera, but the sandstone of the walls, the sand and dirt of the streets, the blue sky, the the hills with stone and, and, and grass, like my set was standing in front of me. So then colors, James loves color. <laughs> I had to be careful how I use color here because it could it could either be a nice foil against all this natural or it could be garish, right? Sure. And something he asked me to do, which was very challenging, and he felt I didn't do it, but then he he saw how it worked, was he wanted a lot of white hoods. And that would have been too stark because I treat white like a color. And to some people, it's a neutral. For me, it's a color. In this particular film, it would have been so harsh a color because of the naturalness of my backdrop. Right. It almost would have been glowing everywhere. Exactly. But then using it effectively in the right places, which is what he then saw using it for my messiahs, using it for my mother Jesus, where I needed people to glow, you know, to be special. How do I make them special in a sea of costumes that technically are the same, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> the The looks of these are just stunning. The, the craftsmanship clearly shines through in all of these examples. So, um, so, I mean, it's an amazing career with a lot of just stunning work that you've been uh, building up over the, over the years. So, but, you know, speaking of color, I think this might be a good time to shift our conversation and start talking about Amelie, which is a fantastic film that is just vibrant and packed with wonderful colors. Do you know what these people have in common? This is Amelie. With the discovery of a simple childhood treasure, she begins a quest to fix other people's lives. And perhaps her own as well.
This is a movie that you picked to talk about, one of your favorites. Uh, What is it that draws you to this film, Antoinette? What drew me to the film was the colors and how, if any film that I think resonates with me, that that collaboration is in play between, one, the direction and the director, but the costume, the sets, the lighting beautifully married was this film. I mean, there's other films, but this was just so, I don't know, maybe it's because it's so specific. The red is so specific and the use of the red, you know, the green, the the three colors that stand out is the red, the green and goals in different tones, sometimes different tones in the same frame and done beautifully, sometimes so subtle and so quiet. And then other times, depending on the set, so busy and so loud, but all working together. I just thought that was brilliant. You know, at the time, I didn't stop and think about what does the red signify or what does the green signify? As just somebody watching it, I just thought how beautifully done. I want to be able to do something like this one day. And then as time progressing is still one of my favorites and then realizing hold on a minute production set deck art directors dp camera everybody directors nominated up the hill i think there was like 50 between 50 wins and nominations in total and only one for costume design I saw that. I was looking up and I couldn't believe it. It shocked me. I'm like, surely it had more than this. And I kept going through the list. Just one. Just one. And I mean, I'm in this now over 30 years. It just speaks to the, I don't know if the word is, what the word is, but that it's just recently that there's not period fantastical films being nominated for Oscars. You know, I was so happy when Mad Max won. But that's the direction. If the costumes aren't lar- larger than life, loud, over-the-top custom, they're not nominated. I'm an Academy member. I sit in on these meetings. And why wasn't Saltburn nominated? Again, costumes effortlessly told the story throughout that film. And that's what, uh, what I, I realized with this is they're acknowledging the lighting and the set, but they're not acknowledging that it takes all three. If the clothes were not bang on, if the designs, if the characters didn't fit within that lighting and set, it would have thrown that movie off. She was a prong in that wheel that made it work and wasn't recognized for it. Well, and you know, I, I suppose it's it's always a challenge in in these projects that has that have so much vibrance in so many different categories really that it 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 overwhelms and i suppose to a certain extent you just say well maybe there were just so many things happening i don't i don't really can't figure it out but you know people acknowledging the the director and the production design and the camera and everything else like and not acknowledging the costume just seems so strange to me because it's it's such an integral part of this particular film It's not strange. It's because everybody can dress themselves. I had more input on lift with costumes that were contemporary costumes that were as easy as pie. Then the harder they fall in the book of Clarence put together. 
Wait, wait, talk more about that. How did that, how does that come to pass? Because, and I mean, this is something that costume designers chat about, that they trust that we've done our research and we know that period more than they do. So they're trusting in our expertise. Mm. But with a contemporary project, they're wearing clothes in a similar time span. I don't like that jacket. I prefer this jacket. Or why don't you get a jacket like this? My son just I brought get it, it. I get and it. it's great. Yeah. But I'm like, but it's not right for this character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, and, and Amelie is a very interesting film. It's, it's, it takes place theoretically in our world, right? I mean, it starts in the seventies and ends in the nineties. You know, we've kind of got, uh, this journey of of following her over the course of it, but there is this magical realism element that Junet clearly infuses into the film throughout. I think that that allows a lot of these flourishes that we get that we see in in the colors and the way the camera moves, and even just in the performances. You know, we we there's so much that everybody is kind of putting into this world, and and Junet. You know, I first learned of Junet in the film that he directed with Mark Caro, Delicatessen, uh, a few years before. And I could already see that there was a lot of really creative energy being funneled out of out of his head. And seeing it here, it's just like it, there's so much creativity on screen in so many different ways. I don't know. I, it just speaks to, I guess, the joy of storytelling and finding a unique way to bring a vision to life. Well, and there's no way for me to watch this movie without smiling ear to ear. That's that is like this. This movie is just joy, even though she's kind of a sociopath. Like there's just she's got some issues, but <laughs> it is a joyful film. The thing that I love so much about this and speaking directly to costumes, my absolute rank amateur take on uh, on this is that these colors are so vibrant, they could be taken as sort of a lampoon to the world, right? But somehow, Audrey Tutu, when she puts on the clothes that she wears, when she interacts with the vibrant reds, when she's happy, and the desaturated world when she's not, and Nino with the blues and the greens, and, uh, like, the entire universe feels, to the point you made earlier, effortless. It feels so natural that she would, to character, exist in the fabrics, in the textures, in the colors in this world. And I, I think that is that is as much a part of world building as any production design conversation we've ever had. And um, uh, it, it just feels effortless. Yeah, it does. It looks effortless. It feels effortless. And I mean, as a lead, she she obviously stands out. She's so beautiful. But when you look at the other, you know, supporting cast, the eccentricities with some of these people that she's helping to make, you know, wanting to make them happy. Ta after talking to me, look at it with different eyes. Because if she's been given a color palette, Madeline, the designer, has been given a specific color palette that she has to work throughout this film with each character and still have it look like their own clothes and effortless. Do you know what I mean? Those colors that are on the woman behind the, um, the counter in the cafe yeah, are like the, the same. Cigarette desk. Yeah. yeah. It's the same colors that it, we're seeing on the, in, in the fruit, the display of the fruit at the, at the market. 
with the two men behind. <laughs> yeah. But now they're wearing the colors that were the behind the wall. So they're literally, it's almost like those three had to sit in an, uh, the production designer, set decorator, and costume designer, and whoever had to sit in the same room and work together through each frame. And that is a skill. That's exactly right. Wow. That's just amazing. Right? It's, 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 it's each frame is almost, then you get to the man with the new, the noom. What is this? What do you call those? Those little Dutch little noom things that ended up in the, the, the Polaroids through each place. Oh, oh the, the gnome. The, the gnome. Yeah. gnome. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. He only wears naturals, yeah, neutral very colors, beige, no yeah. color, beige. But the green is all in his 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 garden. Right. The red it. is in the decoration of where the gnome is. Do you know what I mean? So there's again, who's who's the neutral in this this story, and who's the color? And they're they're bouncing back and forth. That was a dance that they synchronized, choreographed perfectly but she was part of the dance do you know what i mean it's an amazing amount of balancing act that the director balancing has. act yeah this is something that uh, pete and i talk about a lot on our other podcast um the world of voiceovers in film. Uh, I know Pete often <laughs> hates voiceovers. A lot of people do because <laughs> a lot of times people don't know how to use voiceovers effectively in a story and they're just telling you stuff that you're already seeing or you'd rather just be seeing. This is a very different type of voiceover. It's kind of this, this uh, omniscient storyteller kind of telling us this story. I, what do you think of the, the voiceover? Does it work for you? It's fine. I mean, it, it worked with this movie. Sometimes it's jarring. You know what I mean? And other times it's background. With this film, it worked. But just in the nature of the kind of film that it is, I mean, with the flashbacks and... That it's a fable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's like some people hate subtitles. Maybe because I watch so many movies, they don't bug me. But I could see my son being irritated by it. You know, when he just wants (laughs) to get in the story and not be distracted by subtitles i voiceover this voiceover worked for this movie yeah you know i'm i'm maybe i'm the only one that thinks so but i felt it worked it didn't it didn't stop me from being immersed in the film if that's makes sense totally and i don't think you're i don't think you're wrong and in fact i think this is a case example of how to use voiceover so yeah you know if you're looking to make a movie and you think maybe i should have a voiceover watch amelie first to see how it's done that's what i that's it, the case. <laughs> I mean, I, I think from the beginning, Junet really sets it up in that, like you said, Pete, kind of a fable. Like this is a story that is gonna that they're going to tell for us. I mean, we start watching a fly land on the road and get run over by a car. Like that's how this film begins. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm not sure where we're going, but then you start seeing, and then the glasses dancing on the tablecloth as is blowing in the wind, and the guy like it's it's about the little things. It, it's all about these details, and and each time we meet a new character. Instead of like just jumping into their life, we're introduced to backstory with them through the voiceover about, you know, he loves cleaning out his tool chest. He hates getting out of the pool with his swimming suit all all crinkled up. And that my favorite is like, uh, you know, uh, she loves hearing the sound the cat's bowl makes when she puts it on the the tile. And the cat loves eavesdropping on them telling the stories. Like we're just going into these strange little tales, but it's like building this world. And like I so rarely find a voiceover that so effectively gives me 
like a full rich painting of of so many details and it's almost like looking at the painting that the the uh, the glass man is always repainting like you're every time you look at like a Renoir like that, it's like, oh, I didn't notice that t- detail before or this detail before. And this is one of those films where it's just like, it's just overflowing with these details. And that detail, if you t- t- think about detail, it took me a minute to realize who's the other person with the eyeglass watching. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because it wasn't revealed until later. And then I'm still, did I catch that right? It is the glass man, right? Yeah. Yeah. But it was like, it's flipped. She was the one in the beginning. And then someone started to watch her. And what did he think watching her do those things? Was that ever revealed? I don't think so. <laughs> you know? I mean, I've, I've watched the film a few times, sometimes without words. Just, it's on. It's on the just, background. Yeah, yeah. Plain. And I feel like I need to go back once you guys contact, you know, said pick a film, it's like I think I need to go back and just watch the movie from a different, older perspective, a more experienced perspective, but just watch the movie because I think this time around, I'll watch it with different eyes and see different things. You know, that's always an interesting challenge for people in the industry to, you know, when you're so close to the process to be able to step away from the process and and just enjoy it for what it is again you know cuz so often you know we talk to people who like they're they're studying like the way that the camera is moving or the or like the the costumes and how the color palette is is evolving and everything like that and it it becomes almost a task to set aside as a as an, another time to say okay i'm just going to let myself enjoy this as a movie and just let the story wash over me and i think that's Luckily, I think this is a very easy film to do that with. I think it's very easy to kind of get sucked into her, you know, like Pete said, her kind of like sociopathic, crazy ways that she's decided, you know what, <laughs> like, she, it's it's such an interesting character. She's so afraid to to put herself out there. And I think this is something that I, I forget about often when I think about the film, because I, I so enjoy the love story between her and Nino as they slowly kind of come together. But the fact that she really is like not wanting to like be vulnerable, you know, she's, she's kind of built this wall up. Her father always raised her that way. And so she's happy to do all these things to make these people happy, but only secretively. And it's, it's only through kind of like the evolution of her character arc, which, you know, is wonderful where she finally is able to kind of get to that moment where um, she and Nino connect at the door. And it's just, it's perfect. It's such a lovely movie about control, right? Because the things that she can control are the things like she can't control human interaction, but she can control her action, right? She just she can't confront anything because that there's too much uncertainty. And I think that's so much of this movie is her coming to find comfort in uncertainty. And that's the that's the big prize at the end. Like you said, it's the it's the doorway connection where she gets to let go. But let's just acknowledge that this actress said so much without saying anything like her face talk about expressiveness you know that's a master class i think just watching emily the and looking at the actress and how she tells a story on her face you can get lost in that woman's eyes in her face and yeah 
And she's great at delivering a punchline. There is yeah. this, the sequence in here when she is, uh, they they set it up with, you know, Amelie is, is, likes to consider the, the great questions of the world, like how many orgasms are happening right now? And we get that fantastic montage of so many orgasms. And she looks at camera and says, 15, that smirk slays. It slays <laughs> every time. She nails her punchlines. Yeah, yeah, she was good. She's good and got lots of nominations. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, rightly so, rightly so. Yeah, yeah it's it, it's a really interesting and and just magical film. And I guess that's you know just the the joy of of movies and and just telling these stories. And uh, you know, surely you felt this with some of the projects you're doing. Where, I mean, it starts as words on a page, and through the process of so many people. You know, and in this case, with Junet's, you know, crazy vision of like these these vibrant, you know, reds, greens, golds, the camera dancing and just like the crazy movements that he puts into it and infuses and just the voiceovers and the crazy little CG light fixture that she has and just like all of these elements that like by the time you get to the end, it's an effortless movie to watch, but it just it lifts you up and it's just it's kind of invigorating for what cinema can do and you know just starting with words on a page and suddenly we're in this place where we're watching this incredible story and it's just like it just is so moving and what's interesting not only is it moving but it makes you happy it makes you smile it's a it's a sweet film and to be honest with you i normally don't gravitate to sweet films i i started my career doing a lot of horror films a lot of drama which i love because then the clothes reflected that and one of the movies that I, 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 it's been so long since I've seen it was his other film, um, The City of Lost Children, which well, is the sure. complete opposite. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of Amelie, and which is normally where I go, you know, that kind of moody, edgy, dark. And I never thought I'd like Amelie. But I do. I just love, there's a lightness. Uh, even with some of the, the, the dark stuff that's in there, it still feels uplifting. But I think you have to get that. You have to be somewhat, like I said, there's, there's a whole market that would never understand this movie. And those who do really do. Right. And, and that's what's great about it. Well, that's, you know, before we started uh, our conversation, we were talking briefly about it. And you had mentioned that, you know, when this movie came out, like there were some people that you would talk to who said, oh, it's just a light, fluffy thing. And it's just, it was almost like it's a trifle. There's this element to this film that on the surface, I suppose, it feels like, it just feels like kind of a rom-com. You know, we've all yeah. seen rom-coms. We've seen a million different iterations of the same story. It, what is it about this one that makes it feel so different? Is is there a distinctive Frenchness that comes across? I think it's not being able to define what it is. What is this movie? Do you know what? It doesn't fit in a box. Being not American and not growing up in film in America, America likes to put film in boxes, you know, categories, different genres. This seems to not tick any of those boxes, which is one of the main reasons I liked it because it was different. But it's interesting. Someone said to me the other day, I don't want different. I just want entertainment. I want light entertainment. I've worked all day. I just want to come home and watch something that doesn't make me, my brain work too hard. 
And even though you would think this is light and it doesn't, if you stop and dig deeper and, and not just a surface layer, which people could easily say is fluffy, if you really pay attention to the story and the look and the direction and I mean, those flashbacks in black and white are pure genius. Like, if you understand, as a, not just a filmmaker, but just a connoisseur of films, what is being done here, then you see that it's not just fluff. But if somebody doesn't want to think that, think harder than what they, you know, a pretty little girl running around Paris doing God knows what, <laughs> <laughs> you know, then it's fluffy. Yeah. But you have to pay attention a little bit. And sometimes people don't do that. And one of the reasons I like working with James Samuel, you may look at his film and think, oh, this is not that deep, or it's just a Western, or it's just a biblical. But give it a second watch, and stuff starts to come out of it. It's like, oh, I didn't catch that the first time. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, harder they fall. I felt like I got that the first time. I did not get the Book of Clarence the first time. I am eager to watch that movie again. There is a lot going on. A lot going on. Much more than I ever expected on that movie. Yeah. That's reflective of the audience who are seeing it now. They're going in expecting something else. And it's like, oh, this is not what I thought this was going to be. And some people are either they embrace that and want to look at it again, or it's a good thing. Or it's completely, I didn't get that film. And they write it off. Yeah, and then they write it off, and then it's done. I've been trying to take it as a challenge to myself. When I when I see a film that I'm just like, I just don't get that. It just wasn't, you know, it doesn't work for me. To revisit it, because I, in general, find, you know, on a second watch, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> now I see what's happening here. And also, too, if there's not any pressure to watch it for a reason. Do you know what I mean? Right, our timeline, and you could just sit back and just immerse yourself into the movie. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If you do, you can come back and tell me what you think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a beautiful, compelling, really interesting movie. And uh, like I said, it's got so much going on, completely unexpected from James, but uh, a a worthy watch. Disappointing uh, that I'm hearing crud about it because it's uh, undeserved uh mm-hmm. it's worth it's worth checking out for sure and i'll tell you the reveal of the last supper montage is shockingly good yeah yeah really interesting stuff going on just i, I you know i mean I, I, we're off the topic of amelie but just like the way that it builds to <laughs> that ending like it, it was a really surprising ending for me totally <laughs> i wasn't expecting that from the film and i'm like wow okay that actually went a lot farther than I was thinking they were going to go with this film. And it was just a real surprise. So it was was nice to see. Well, and that's what I think, Antoinette, you're talking about. Like when the movie starts off and it sets a certain tone and Mm -hmm. then it delivers a punchline that doesn't match the initial tone, that's jarring. That's jarring Mm -hmm. for people. But that's also, that's kind of what he does with his movies, right? Exactly. Exactly. Anyway. Andy, how'd this movie do at award season? Well, we've already been talking about it a little bit. Yeah, a very, very popular movie. It had 59 wins with 74 other nominations. 
very, very popular. Sadly, only one for costume design at the Caesar Awards. But the Caesar Awards is very popular. 13 nominations. It won for Best Director, Best Film, Best Music, Best Production Design. Audrey Tattoo is nominated for Best Actress, but lost to Emmanuel Devos in Read My Lips. Screenplay and Sound also lost to Read My Lips. Uh, Best Supporting Actor, Jamel Debus. I think I'm saying his name somewhat close. Uh, And Rufus were both nominated for Supporting Actor, but lost to Andre Dussolier in The Officer's Ward. Cinematography also lost to The Officer's Ward. Uh, Isabel Nanty, she was the um, cigarette counter girl, was nominated for Supporting Actress, but lost to Annie Girardot in The Piano Teacher. Editing lost to Wing Migration and Costume Design. This is the one nomination it got. It lost to Brotherhood of the Wolf. A very interesting costume, but uh, to Antoinette's point, something that is period fantasy, all of that. Falling apart at the seams. Falling apart at the seams. At the Oscars, it had five nominations. Original Screenplay lost to Gosford Park. Best Foreign Language Film lost to No Man's Land. Best Cinematography lost to Fellowship of the Ring. Best Art Direction Set Decoration lost to Moulin Rouge. And Best Sound lost to Black Hawk Down. So, you know, it it had its place in the awards. It obviously won a good number of them. It was very popular. But um, sadly, costume design. Contemporary, just wasn't getting noticed okay but how to do at the box office this is uh it, it had to have made some money it did i don't know the french numbers for junet's budget but it translates to 10 million dollars or 17.9 in today's dollars the movie opened in france april 25th 2001 then here in the states on november 2nd 2001 opposite monsters inc the one domestic disturbance and the man who wasn't there It started in a fairly limited release, but grew to just over 300 screens, and it found a passionate audience that definitely connected with it. In the end, the film ended up grossing $33.2 million domestically and $141 million internationally for a total gross of $311.9 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of almost $2.4 million. A great success for everyone involved. It seems like at $33.2 million domestically, that's domestic to France. No, that's actually U.S. When I'm doing domestic, it's always just the U.S. numbers. Oh, it's always U.S. Okay. I was going to say the French didn't do their part, but it sounds like maybe they did. <laughs> yeah, they're they're probably the bulk of that 141. It was a very popular film over there. <laughs> yeah, right. Very popular film. You know, I, I, I want to say something else about Amelie that I, I think really helps the the overall uh, vibe of the whole thing. The music that we have through Amelie with that Jan Tiersen did, it's just like, it really kind of lifts everything up that much more. Like just that, the fantastic accordion music. It's, you want to skip. Yeah, it's just <laughs> like, by the time they're on their little, uh, you know, motor scooter at the end, just like zipping through Paris, it's just like, that music is just like, it's like my heartbeat. It's just like pumping through. It's just, it's vibrant and alive and it just... I think, you know, just piecing all of these things together with this film is just, it's just kind of amazing that it all came together so perfectly. And it just, it really does feel effortless. We've talked about that a number of times here, but the music, everything, it's just a, it's a wonderful, wonderful film. Well, I'm I'm happy that you guys like, you know, you get that pick one and you're like, you hope that they're going to like your choices. (laughs) (laughs) No, you hit that out of the park. This was, this is, uh, yeah, this is Moth of the Flame for us. An easy, easy watch. Absolutely. Uh, It has been such a wonderful time talking with you about this, Antoinette. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Before I go, though, I'm going to, if you liked the color palette 
of Emily or what was done with the colors and the set. Take a look at a film I did with Jeremy Seliner. I don't know if you've seen Hold the Dark. I did with uh, Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright. I mean, much more subtle. Yeah. Cold. Cold. Very. <laughs> yeah. well, we were in the depths of mountains of Calgary. It's yeah. very cold. The only thing, the other stuff that shot up there is Revenant and and the Game of Thrones wolves sequences. But um, working with that production designer and DP was a gift because I felt that that film is as close to that type of storytelling that I've gotten to before working with Martin. Yeah. Much more subtle, much darker, not a happy story, but right. um, the colors helped tell that story, I thought. Yeah, and and uh, you won an award, I think, for that one too, right? Yes, I won a Kafka, a Canadian costume award, yes. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. That film made me very cold. <laughs> it was very cold <laughs> watching that movie. <laughs> I wanted that big coat that he had because it was just... Yeah. Well, do you have places online that we should send people? Uh, I think you you have a home on Instagram, right? Yeah, I have a home on Instagram. I just followed you on threads. Big threads Ah! person right there. Hey. I have to get used to it. I kind of walked away (laughs) from X. Yeah. 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 I don't know what's going on over there, but it just, to me, is what I don't want from social media right now. Sure. Yeah. Going down that rabbit hole, you know. Yeah, yep. Yep. I'm I'm starting to get used to threads, so we'll see. You know, we want to have conversations, but conversations that are not, I felt politically driven or toxic. Safe, fun conversations. I, I well, it doesn't have to be safe, and it doesn't have to be fun. But I would like it to be somewhat intelligent. Is that too high? <laughs> Well, it is, is social too- media. Uh, yeah, I'm afraid you you missed the memo. There's none of that that's allowed. I know. I said that. I said that. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> well, we'll put all of these in the show notes so that everybody can track you down and follow you and see what you're up to and everything. So, Thank you. This has been fun. Thank you very much. You're awesome. Thank you. It's been a treat. It has been such a wonderful time. Uh, thanks again. And for everybody else out there, we hope that you liked the show and certainly hope that you like the movies like we do here on Movies We Like. Movies We Like is a part of the True Story FM Entertainment Podcast Network. The music is Chomp Clap by Out of Flux. Find the show at truestory.fm and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Threads, and Letterboxd at The Next Reel. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, we always appreciate it if you drop one in there for us. See you next time. I love having these wonderful chats on movies we like with all these industry guests talking about some of their favorite movies. So many great conversations on that show about so many great movies. We have so much fun having these conversations, but producing the show week after week does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these incredible conversations. 
the originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. Links to the source material for all the adapted film discussions on The Next Reel's family of podcasts. Purchasing through our links supports the show. It's your one-stop shop for Amazon and Apple links where you can buy your copy of the original source material. Original material for movies we like, movies like Casino Royale. The Silent Partner. Never Let Me Go. Silver Linings Playbook. There Will Be Blood, based on Upton Sinclair's Oil. I believe it's Oil! Oh yeah, I forgot the exclamation point. (laughs) Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort. TheNextReel.com slash originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner. That's right. Head over to TheNextReel.com slash originals to pick out your next read and dig in today. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today. 